Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. I'm excited to be sharing the word with you this morning. Um, Last week... um, Danny and Jenny got to go up to All City Church and see Joe and Katrina and the team up there, and so which left a vacancy at, over at Coastlands. So I went. I wasn't here last weekend. I went over there and spoke over there, and I uh, saw our our Coastlands cousins in the faraway land of Aptos. It was really it was great. They said to say hi. So hey everybody. Um, so we're um, if you're if you've been following along, we are uh, at the midway point. We're halfway through our series, our essentials series, talking about kind of our core beliefs. Uh, and today we're looking at our third of five core beliefs that we have here at Hope Church. And do you guys remember the first two? The first one was the the Bible was the inspired word of God, right? And last week Tim talked about uh, that God is is one God, but expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And today, we get to our third core belief, our third essential, and that is that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. He's both fully man and fully God. Now, my plan is not to try to uh, prove anything to you today. That's an urge I have to resist, by the way. Uh, Enjoy as much as I enjoy arguing, I, I, I don't want to prove anything to you today. I, I want to just merely reveal the claims that Jesus made and his followers made about him and then let you make up your mind what you might believe about that. So, uh, and you might be thinking, well, you know, why is it important? I mean, we can agree that there's Jesus. Why is it important that we, we believe these particular things? Well, I'll tell you, uh, it seemed to Jesus that it was very important to him. In fact, this is, a, this is a question that he asked with some frequency. He would say, who do people say that I am? He would ask his friends, who do people say that I am? Who do they say that I am? And then, more importantly, he would ask them, he'd say, who do you say that I am? Who do you say? I think that's a question that he's been asking ever since, and he's asking it today of us. Who who do you say that I am? Who do you say? And so, you know, we want to think about this, and we want to treat it carefully and and be contemplative as we talk about it. You know, um, uh, my Kids are sitting right over here. My oldest is Katie. She's 12. And my, the next one down is Andrew. He's 10. And so when Katie was two, Andrew came onto the scene. And as you might imagine, she was very excited. And, you know, we, we told her there's a baby coming. There's a baby coming. So when the baby came, of course, we said, this is Andrew. And she said, hello, baby. Uh, and then she just kept calling him that for like, a lot of years, she would say, come on, baby, let's play. Baby, are you hungry? This is baby, you know, she would introduce him. And he just answered to it because it was from the beginning, you know. He just thought his name was Andrew, but also baby. And uh, until there came a point where he didn't want to be called that anymore. He would say, my name is Andrew. My name is Andrew. And then finally, when I think he was about four or five years old, there just came this point. I remember it. We, we talk about it still where we were at the table. And... And she said, baby, would you like any more whatever, some food or something? And he goes, I not a baby, I a big boy. Like he'd had enough. He was done, you know. It's important to us to be known in the right way, isn't it? We want to be known in the right way. We don't, I mean, I, don't, you, don't you really um, hate it when someone 
has a misunderstanding about who you are. They, they don't believe the right things about you. So, of course, of course, Jesus would want us to know the right things about him. You know, in the Hebrew Scriptures, so the Old Testament, we call it in the, in the Christian Bible, that followers of God, for thousands of years, they would, they would look up and they would think about God and they would talk about their personal reverence for him with this word fear. We call it the fear of the Lord. Um, and, of course, that word has a bunch of baggage for us in English. So, when you, I mean, when you hear the word fear, what do you think of? Something bad, right? Yeah, being afraid of something, you know. Um, uh, afraid of spiders or, you know, afraid of death or, you know, whatever it is. That's not how they use the word fear. And so we kind of want to unpack a little bit of, uh, of how that word meant something different to them than it does to us. It, for them, these ancients, it meant more about their, their acknowledgement of their humble place in the grand scheme of the universe. So God is up there, I'm down here, and they used that that, that uh, framework, they use the word fear to describe it. However, with the coming of Jesus, just 2,000 years ago, something changed. And followers of God that became followers of Jesus, they began to use a new kind of motif when they talked about how they thought about God. And this word is friendship, right? So there's the fear, and then there's the friendship. Today we're going to unpack these these two claims of Jesus, his humanity and his divinity, and we're going to talk about them using the vehicle of these two words, friendship and fear. And we're going to think about the implications for us as modern humans, because it, it matters. It matters what we think about these things. So there's, there's two stories about Jesus. There really are two different stories about Jesus. The one story is about the man, Jesus. And if we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read these accounts by firsthand eyewitness accounts, uh, about Jesus, there's this story about the man, Jesus. And the man, Jesus, he, he had a mom. He had a mom, and he loved her. And, he, and he, the man, Jesus, he eats, and he travels. He walks around, and he gets tired, and he gets hungry, and he eats some more, and he makes some friends, and he cries, and he feels sorrow, and he feels anguish, and he gets hungry, and he eats some more, and he makes a few more friends. And then he gets murdered. But then he shows up again, and he gets hungry. And he, he makes some food. He makes some fish for his friends on the beach. That's the story of the man Jesus. There's a lot more to it than that. But those are some elements of the story, right? But there's another story um, about the God Jesus. And this story, he fulfills prophecies about himself, even by being born in the right place. He transmutes physical objects into better ones. He... He controls gravity. He bends space-time. He, he talks to dead people. He reads minds. He eradicates illness in certain people. He, he practices matter multiplication. If you think about it, you'll get that one later. It, he gets murdered. He defeats death. He walks through some walls, surprises the heck out of some people. He gives one last speech, and then he flies away like Superman. All of those things happen. So there's, there's the man Jesus, and there's the God Jesus. And these two stories, they, they intertwine, and they overlap, and they're all complicated, and they're all one thing. And so we want to talk about that today. So we want to talk about, what do we say? Friendship and fear, right? What do we have? Oh, yeah, here we go. So, so if we, if we uh, we're going to make a have a category here, right? So over here we have fear, 
over here we have friendship. Okay? This is how we're going to talk about Jesus' divinity and his humanity. These two stories, they, they overlap in places and, and they, they intertwine. But we're going to begin with, we're going to talk about the fear. Right? So there's a bunch, of, I said there was a bunch of verses in the Old Testament that talk about this, and there are. One of them that comes to mind for me is one that uh, my mother used to read the Proverbs to us when I was a little boy, so I think of it a lot. And Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, this was written by a very wise guy, <laughs> uh, Solomon, and his book, among other books, were, were called the wisdom literature. A lot of wisdom themes happening here, right? So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That Hebrew word fear, we translate as Eng into English as fear. The Hebrew word is irat. That's Y-I-R-A-T. You know you want to say it. Go ahead. Irat. Yirat, right? fear. It does, it does get translated in the, into English as fear, but it means reverence, to revere, to, to have a sense of one's proper place in relationship to something else. Right? So in order to unpack this part of things, I think we have to get all the pieces on the table. That's how I like to do it. You ever put together a piece of IKEA furniture? You don't just reach into the box and grab the two first things and start playing with it, right? You get it all out there so you can just fully lose your mind in the whole process, right? So let's get all the pieces out. So um, I think a really important piece comes from a piece of literature written by Daniel. It's, uh, it was written six, uh, 600 years before Jesus. And, and Daniel writes a type of literature in his, in his writings called apocalyptic literature. Very um, symbolic and very off-putting for modern people to read because there's so much symbolism, and the symbolism is often very dark. In fact, this is no exception. Chapter, uh, chapter 7 of Daniel has this vision of these beasts, these huge monsters rising up and destroying and, and harming people, and then they're, they're brought low, and then the next one comes up, and each one is worse than the last. But these are symbols for empires, empires of people that would, that would rise up and evil kings that would subjugate and oppress people. So, so Daniel talks about that in the form of these, these, um, these images. And, the, and he has this vision in which God's judgment comes against those empires. And, and ultimately, it um, erases all of the evil and the, the slavery. And then there's this, in his vision, there's the, an appearance of this, uh, this heavenly figure. Right? And so we're going we're gonna to read uh, Daniel chapter 7. And I've invited uh, our friend Audrey. Audrey Buffington, the newly minted Mrs. Buffington, she's going to come and read uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 through 11 and 13 and 14. Here you are. If you want, you can stand on this side of me. Hey, so she's going to read this. And so keep in mind the context, right? So there's these, there's these beasts rising up, these empires, and then Daniel gets to the part of his vision where he sees this heavenly figure. Take it away, Audrey. As I looked... Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. 
Then I continued to watch of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks, Audrey. Good job. Very good. So there's this, this intense vision of all of this calamity, and then this person. Did you, did you hear the, the term for this heavenly person? Did you hear that, that term that Daniel used? There, it's one like a son of man. Yeah, yeah, son of man. So son of man, this, this term, son of man, in Hebrew, it's ben adam. Ben just means son of, and adam means human being or human or man or mankind. And 107 times this word appears, this phrase uh, appears in the Old Testament, but only one time here in Daniel chapter 7 is it used this way. And it's like one like a son of man, one who looks like a human being, but is something far more. Right? So this is the image that Daniel builds. And what's significant about this, this this image that Daniel is building is that this is the term that Jesus used for himself. So when you think about, have you, ever heard, have you ever heard someone say this? Jesus never actually said he was the son of God. People said that later. This is a common argument amongst um, uh, critiques of the, uh, critics of the Bible. This is, uh, people say, hey, he never claimed to be the son of God. And it's true, Jesus never went around introducing himself as, hi, I'm Jesus, the Christ. That, that did not happen. It's true. But he did use this term all the time, son of man. Son of man, right? And I've heard a lot of preachers over the years, you probably have too, use this term and say, oh, this is Jesus saying, he's just, he's just like us. He's just a guy. He's just a man, right? Wrong. They're all wrong. Let me tell you. I don't mind saying it. They're all wrong. In fact, in John chapter 8 and verse 10, uh, and, and then later in chapter 10, uh, Jesus uses this term. He refers to himself this way, and the religious leaders get so angry, they get so angry because they they recognize the, the reference to Daniel, that they pick up rocks and they try to murder him. Nobody has ever murdered anybody for saying, I'm just a guy, I'm just a human being, right? It's because he made this claim about himself. Here's a place where he makes that claim in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. It says, this is the moment where Jesus is going before the, the Sanhedrin. Um, they've accused him of blasphemy. And this, this is the moment that would ultimately lead to the cross. He's, he's going to be executed soon. And it says, uh, and they're questioning him. And Matthew chapter 6, verse 63 says, But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Tell us, he says. You've heard people say Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Let's hear what he has to say. This is the moment where he could uh, go either way, right? And Jesus said, you have said so, but I say to all of you, from now on, listen to what he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What does that sound like? Does that sound familiar? We just heard that, right? He's saying that person that Daniel saw in his vision, that's me. That's me. Then the high priest tore his clothes 
said, he's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. The blasphemy was that Jesus had made the claim, I am that person that Daniel foresaw. Does anyone know the name of the first Christian martyr? Stephen, all right, pretty good. All right, good job. The first Christian martyr, that's right. His name was Stephen. There was a rumor going around right at the beginning in the early church that, that Jesus has, had told his disciples after he was gone that he wanted them to destroy the temple, uh, the temple that Herod built. Now, this was quite silly because the temple was, I mean, it's huge, massive edifices and walls and steps and a huge, it had a huge uh, ramp leading up to it. Um, I mean, it would these were like, you know, fishermen and tax collectors and ex-prostitutes. I mean, these people were not going to destroy the temple. That was never going to happen. But, but this rumor was going around that they were going to do that. And so Stephen was accused of plotting basically an act of terrorism. Um, and he was tried in a kangaroo court and sentenced to death. So, so they drag Stephen out. And in Acts uh, chapter 7, Steve give, Stephen gives this long... I can call him Steve. Yeah, I'll call him Steve. Um, we're cool like that, Steve. Um, in Acts chapter 7, he gives this long speech about how, um, uh, you should read it, it's really beautiful, about how the history of Israel and the coming of Jesus and how it's all intertwined. They let him talk, and they give him this, they, he gives a speech, and it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin, these are the same people that got so upset when Jesus claimed to be this son of man character, uh, when the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth, Arr, right? Gnashed their teeth at him. You have to be pretty upset at your teeth, because it's like, it's not good for your teeth. They're pretty upset. And it says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, why is he full of the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, in Acts chapter 2, something happened that Jesus promised would happen, is the Holy Spirit came upon all of his followers that were there, and they were filled up with God's presence and became the new temple, right? The dwelling place of God, that's that's us. That's you and I. We're the dwelling place of God. So he's full of the Holy Spirit. And look at this. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. It says, Stephen looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he says, look, even though only he could see it. Look, he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That sound familiar? We've, we've heard this now a couple times, right? Is there any doubt in your mind that at the very least Jesus and his followers, at the very least they believed that he was this person, that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the presence of the divine walking among us? Okay, we've talked about his divinity, right? So we're going to put that right here. We talked about his divinity. We're going to talk about his humanity now, okay? We talk about his humanity. Now, why would it be important to establish his humanity? We've already established it, his divinity, his godhood. Why is it also important to say that he's a man? This isn't rhetorical. Why, why would it be important? Why is it important to understand that Jesus was a man, a human like us? Why is that important? Any? We can relate. Relationship, yeah. We can relate. God... God is, as we understand him, is a maximally perfect being. That means anything that he is, he is that thing to the greatest degree that he'd be that thing. That means there's no one greater than him. That means he's perfect. And he made a world in which he could interact with less than perfect human beings. But 
because of our sin, because of our mistakes, we made this world uninhabitable for him, for a perfect being. So he had to find a way to bridge that gap, right? That's where Jesus comes in. That's where we get to talk about the friendship of God. So Jesus was from a place. It's not where he was born, but it was where he was raised. It, the, the, the location of your, um, your childhood would often get tagged onto your name in ancient days. And so we know him as Jesus of Nazareth, right, Nazareth. Now his place, was, uh, his place that he was raised, this Nazareth, was uh, not thought of as a nice neighborhood. It was a, it was a bad neighborhood. It was very, very poor. Um, and people that were from there were, look, uh, were looked down upon. Not a, not a good neighborhood, right? So he positioned himself, even in his place of birth, as being low and powerless, as anyone else in history. Uh, born into poverty to a displaced family of immigrants from a people who were historically enslaved, he demonstrated his willingness to submit to the human experience, right? We can't say, uh, he, he doesn't know what I'm going through. He, he's been through it. Right? He lived it. He lived it. You know, when Stephen was martyred, there was a young, radical, religious man there who helped facilitate that murder. And when this man grew older, he had a radical encounter with the living Jesus. And he went on to write these words right here about him in a letter to the church in Philippi. This is Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So what's, what's Jesus demonstrating here? He's demonstrating that there's a way in which we can live where we don't use our power and resource and the things that we have to take advantage of others. We actually use them in a way that lifts people up. That's what he's modeling for us. That's powerful. That's pretty radical. Paul, Paul goes on to say this. Rather, he made himself nothing to take the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the very highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord, the glory of the Father. This word friendship, when it appears in the New Testament, it's, it's a Greek word. So in the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek, right? And the New Testament has this word phyloi, phyloi. When you see the word friendship, it, it's phyloi. And Jesus uses this word himself in the Gospel of John when he says this, he says, my command is this. Now, keep in mind that when Jesus is speaking to his friends and followers, it's just like he's speaking to us as his friends and followers. So this is, he's speaking to us right now. So take this in as being written directly to you. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love as no one than this to lay down one's life for one's phyloi. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father I have made known to you. So he's saying, I, I've let you in on the greatest secret of human history, that there's a way to be friends with God, and here's how you do it. 
you become phyloi. Now, here's the thing. Is just like a lot of English words have baggage and understand, the word friend to, me, to us means a lot of different things, right? I mean, you could say, I have a friend, and he owes me a ton of money, and he's never treated me well, right? <laughs> right? Like, he smashed my car, and now he won't call me back. That's my friend, right? So, but in Greek, the word phyloi means something, something way more profound than the way we casually throw out the word friend. Phyloi has a relationship with another Greek word, and that is uh, ekthoi, which means enemy. So friend and enemy, these two words were positioned kind of against each other and in context with each other. So, uh, uh, you know, in uh, Greek culture, if, if you had a dispute, let's say uh, I had a, an ekthoi, an enemy, who had accused me of something, I could go to court uh, and face his accusation. But the way I would do it is not by presenting evidence like we do uh, in our courts. Instead, you present your phyloi. You'd bring your phyloi. You'd bring your friends. And the outcome of the trial would depend on the, the testimony of your phyloi. Your closest friends would come and they would say, that couldn't have happened because I know this man and I know him to be this way and he would never do those things. That's, so your life would sometimes, it could possibly depend on the testimony of your, your friends, your phyloi. Now I have a friend, I, I have a couple. I have a friend who um, I see him maybe every six months or so. He'll text me out of the blue. He's, we were friends in high school and we'll get together, we'll talk about you know, books we've read or politics or, you know, a movie, trade a couple stories from the old days, and then, you know, that's it. And I'll see him maybe six months later or a year, you know, sometimes we'll go by before we see each other. That's not the kind of friendship we're talking about here, you know. I have a friend who owes me some money and has not treated me well over the years and, you know, moved away and is hard to get a hold of. And, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. I have another kind of friend. My brother Nick is my friend, and if I went to his house tonight, if I drove up to his house and I knocked on the door at 2 in the morning and I said, you can't ask me any questions, but you need to come with me right now because I need you. It might be dangerous. We could get into trouble, but I need you. He would ask me one question. Are we going to take your car or mine? That's phyloi. That's phyloi, right? It's very important that we have Jesus as our phyloi, our friend. I just want to share one last story with you before we're done. And that, that story is found in John chapter 1, verse 45. I, this is one of my favorite stories about Jesus. And it's, it's the part of his story where he's going around and he's gathering, he's gathering friends. And people are just starting to hear about him. And their friends are telling their friends about him. Right? It's that part of the story. There was a couple of friends that he made that were followers of his cousin, John the Baptist. And they came and they started following him. They, they said, we want to follow you, teacher, and learn from you. And one of them was Philip. And Philip ran and found his friend, Nathaniel. So this is John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and he told him, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Here's what Nathaniel has to say. He says, Nazareth? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Right? We talked about that, right? Na Nazareth was not a good 
place to, you know, if you're going to start a religion, if I was going to start, I, and I could choose the place of my birth so I could look back and be like, you should, you should be into me and my, the stuff I have to say because look, you know, uh, this is not the place that I would have chosen, right? You'd, you chose, you'd want to be born in a big city to an affluent and important family, right? If you want, but that's not what Jesus was demonstrating here. So Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked, and Philip said, come and see. And that's what we do as his friends and his followers today, right? When people ask the question, Jesus, did he really say he was the son of God? Did he, did he say that? And we say, come and see, come and see, right? We are Philip here. When Jesus saw that Nathanael was approaching, so he went with Philip, he said of him, he said, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This is a good man. This is a good man that's coming here. Nathanael asked, how, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, there's two ways to interpret that piece of text there. One is literally that he really was sitting under a, a fig tree, and Jesus just read his mind. We talked about this, right, earlier. This is, he read his mind. He saw where he was. But also, uh, do you know what an idiom is? An idiom? It's a phrase. Like, um, like if you say, that joke cracked me up, right? It's not meant to be taken literally. I'm not l- literally cracking, you know, my body isn't cracking. I'm, I'm, I find it funny. An idiom is a combination of words that don't necessarily mean what they literally sound like. And there's an ancient Hebrew idiom, uh, to be found underneath uh, a fig tree means to be reading from the Torah. If you, if you said, what did you do yesterday? Well, I, I, was, I was under the fig tree, meaning I, I was reading the word of God. So when, when Jesus says, I saw you, I saw you, Nathaniel, you were reading the word of God. This is a good man. He sees you. Jesus said, uh, well, Nathaniel responds to this incredible insight that Jesus has. And he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. And and in other words, yeah, that was a good trick. And that's why you believe. But you're going to see greater things than that. He says, very truly, I tell you, listen to this. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. The reason it's important for us to understand that Jesus rightly in this way is because it's how we can know that God knows us and sees us. He sees you. Do you know he sees you? You know, he uses his his divinity and his humanity. Sorry, I forgot to put that up here. His humanity. Fear and friendship. He uses it to split history in half. And these two things, these two story threads, they come together at the cross. And he made a way so that we could have relationship with God. We could have a friendship with God. Not the kind of friendship where you, you, know, you say, oh, I went to a movie with my friend, but the kind of friendship where, where he might come to you. In fact, this might be this moment for some of you. 
Jesus might, the scripture says that Jesus comes and he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks, and he knocks. And if you open it, he might say something like this. You can't ask me any questions right now, but I need you to come with me. And it might be dangerous, and we might get into trouble, but you need to follow me. For some of us, we've had that moment, and we said yes, and we stepped through that door, and here we are. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find a home. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.